Great job, guys. Uh, Renee Nelson, Ryan Pale run that ministry, and they asked me if I wanted to dance this morning, but I didn't want to show anybody up. Uh, uh, Youth Impact has gone by several different names, but the ministry actually started almost 30 years ago when I was an undergrad at Texas A&M, beginning in the early 80s. Youth Impact began and was reaching out to children and youth in the community. Now we've got about 100 college volunteers who are working on a weekly basis. They share Christ with about 250 to 300 uh, students who live in this community. And they've seen a lot of these students go on uh, to trust Christ, uh, to be discipled through this ministry, to grow in Christ. They've seen a lot of these students become the first graduates of, from high school, from their whole family. Some of them even gone on to college. I've seen some of these kids actually go on uh, to the mission field and be missionaries. We've actually got seven of them who are going to go this next year as short-term missionaries. Uh, so the, the ministry really has long-reaching impact. Um, one of the other ministries that they have is they send kids to camp. You should have seen the slide earlier this morning. They send kids to Kids Across America. It's one of the Canica camps. And one of the ways that they raise money for that is through the pancake breakfast. So if you've got any interest in finding out more about this ministry or in supporting them, please come to the pancake breakfast. Uh, Now, as we get into the Word this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Join me in prayer, please. Father, uh, we do pray for the ministry of Youth Impact. I, I, I pray that you'd increase their impact. Father, I pray that you would allow them to reach into more families who um, are really facing difficult circumstances with um, broken homes and drugs and violence and, and all kinds of, uh, of challenges that a lot of our families don't necessarily face on a day-to-day basis. I pray, Father, that you would empower them with your spirit. We would see supernatural and dramatic things happening in these families to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for ourselves this morning as we look at your word that we would come with humble hearts, teachable hearts. I pray, Father, that we would relinquish our own wills and that we would find a really genuine, blessed life in you. We would believe your words. And your spirit would transform the way that we think and the choices we make. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this last semester, I did, uh, earlier, I did some research on uh, Valentine's Day gifts because I wanted to get it right this year. And uh, as I was doing my research, I came across some lists of worst Valentine's Day gifts that you could give, which I found actually very helpful and interesting and informative because from time to time I've walked down that bad path. So I want to, I want to give you this. This may not be perfectly timely, but think about this, guys, for next year. One of the worst gifts rated on one of these lists very high was uh, knives. Don't give your wife or girlfriend knives, or they may be used <laughs> inappropriately. Uh, another was self-help books. Never give self-help books regarding any topic. A third was vacuum cleaners. So the principle here is don't give anything that cuts or is used in the kitchen, anything that is regarding self-help, or anything that can be plugged in or has an electric motor. All these things are off limits. They don't really connect very well. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't fail this year. I actually really, I really uh, gave a great gift. It really connected with something my wife wanted. She wanted it for a long time. Very timely, appropriate gift. I got her a charm from James Avery. This, this is not actual size. It's... Uh, <laughs> Smaller than that. But it's just what she wanted. 
It's just what she wanted. Guys, can you imagine giving the absolutely perfect gift so that your spouse or girlfriend says, I never want anything again in my life. That's the perfect gift. I don't need a Valentine's Day gift. I don't need a birthday gift. I don't need anything else. My life is full because I have this gift and I have you. Can you imagine that? Guys, can you imagine giving such a gift? Ladies, can you imagine receiving a gift in which you say, my life is now complete. I have no more needs. I have no more even desires. Can you imagine living your whole life that way? So that as you move through life, you could actually say, I I don't really need anything else. I don't want anything else. For my life to be rich and complete, I've got it. When Jesus preaches his first sermon, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, that's basically the topic that he's addressing. He is telling his audience, here's how to have the blessed life, the life that is full and complete. Now, now blessed is not a word that we normally use in our day-to-day language. What does it mean to be blessed? Probably the best way that I can explain it is by way of an illustration. It's the Greek word makarios. And this word makarios, or blessed, was used to apply to the Greek island of Cyprus. Now, here's the idea that they were thinking. The idea was for citizens of Cyprus that they didn't need to leave their island for anything. Their island was self-contained. All that they needed for a, a wonderful and rich and satisfying life was contained on the island. They were complete. It was makarios. That's the idea that's, that's behind Jesus' sermon here. The blessed life is the life that is full and complete and needs absolutely nothing. I want to put this in context before we actually get into the sermon. I want you to look with me back in chapter 4 and verse 17. Let's put the Sermon in the Mount in context here. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're right at the very beginning point of Jesus' ministry. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he's beginning to collect followers or disciples as he moves around and he preaches and teaches and heals. Verse 21 Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering various diseases and pains and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. People from every area are now beginning to follow Jesus because they're beginning to hear of these miraculous signs in his teachings. And they're saying to themselves, could this be God's Messiah? Could this be the anointed one? Could this be the king of Israel who's about to bring in the kingdom? And there's this incredible sense of expectations, expectation and his disciples have actually left everything. They've left the family business behind and they are following Jesus with great expectations because they think the kingdom is at hand. And so Jesus preaches to them a sermon about the kingdom, but it's not what they expected to hear. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 1. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not at all what they were expecting. And I can imagine as Jesus began to preach, some of them began to say, whoa, 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 stop for a second. Jesus, no, 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 no. Blessed are the rich, and that's why we're following you. Not blessed are the poor, blessed are the rich, Jesus. Those are the ones who display that God's favor is upon them. Blessed are those who mourn, no, blessed are those who are having the party. Not those who are sad, blessed are, are the meek, no, blessed are the powerful, Jesus. Blessed are those who have power over their enemies and can crush their enemies. Blessed are those who are persecuted. No, Jesus. No, no, that's not it. That's not why we're following. That's not what we've signed up for. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is trying to entirely turn their world upside down. He's trying to show them that in God's kingdom... The way to a life that's really rich and full and satisfying and complete is not what you expect and it's not what the world says. And so he begins with this statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Greek, there are two words for the poor people. One was a word that referred to people that lived hand to mouth. They would go out into the workforce for a given day, and they would earn enough just to bring back money to buy food for their family, feed the family, and the next morning they had to get up and work again to bring back food. It was just hand-to-mouth, a hand-to-mouth. But then there was another word that referred to people that were on the verge of starvation. They were nearly destitute. They're about to be thrown out of their houses. They're about to be living on the street, or they were living on the street. Jesus uses that word. Blessed are those who are absolutely destitute in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who have absolutely nothing and recognize they have absolutely nothing so that when they come to God, they're not offering God something. They're not saying, God, this is why I'm worthy to be in your presence. God, I'm coming to you with absolutely empty hands. I deserve nothing. Please give me. Please give me. Blessed are those who acknowledge their absolute spiritual bankruptcy. This is the beginning point of walking with God. This is the beginning point of life with God. And quite honestly, this is the continuation of life with God. Our relationship with God is all of grace. It's what he provides for us. I want you to keep your place here in Matthew chapter 5. Turn all the way back to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus directly addresses a church who has lost sight of this The church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy 
and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus said, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. Those who are sick are the ones who need a physician. And Jesus wasn't saying that there were some who were actually righteous or some who were actually well. What he was saying is there are some who actually are aware of the fact that they're sick and unrighteous and need me. And so who was it that was drawn to Jesus in his ministry? Remember? It was uh, prostitutes. It was uh, tax collectors who were outcasts in society. It was the poor and the blind And the lepers, everywhere Jesus went, they flocked to him. Who was not drawn to Jesus? Those who were self-righteous. Jesus was just a novelty to them. Maybe from time to time they would want this radical teacher to come into their house kind of like a trophy. But they were not open and receptive to Jesus. On the other hand, those who realized that they were poor and wretched and blind and naked and had absolutely nothing came to Jesus. And you know, that, that's the beginning point of the gospel. The gospel is an incredibly simple message, but it's also a, an incredibly humbling message. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we say, we, Jesus, we bring nothing It's not your death on the cross plus all that we bring. It's just your sacrifice. And through that, we're reconciled to God. And we have life. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not on the basis of our good works or our baptism or our church attendance or reaching out into the community and community service. It's not any of those things. It's simply a gift. It's an absolutely free gift. But it will not be received except by those who acknowledge, I have nothing to give, God. That's faith. Faith is, thank you, God, I received the gift. And that's also the continuation of our relationship with God. When we come to the Lord, even as believers, it's not on the basis of our own merit. We have a great high priest who stands daily ministering on our behalf, and we come on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ boldly into the throne. Jesus Christ gives us access. And so Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning point. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, that they're destitute. Same principle we see in the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Why don't you turn back in the Gospels with me to Luke chapter 18. Jesus told a parable that illustrated this principle. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's the setup. Jesus is telling a parable to drive home a point to those who think that they've got it all figured out and life is under control 
And life is full and rich apart from God. They are self-righteous. And as a result of their self-righteousness, how do they look at everybody else? They look down on everyone else. They view everyone else with contempt. So he tells a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Okay, So what culture regards as righteous, the Pharisee, and what culture looks down upon in that day, the tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. That's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> the Pharisee, who's the Pharisee praying to? God? No, no, the Pharisee's praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like, yeah, that guy over there, that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And there's a big part of us that does not want to be humbled or to humble ourselves. But how can we receive from God when we're coming with hands that are absolutely already filled with what we've been able to go out and grasp in life? And so Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning point. Blessed, full are those who recognize that in themselves they're empty. And that's radical. That's not what the disciples expected to hear. Maybe blessed are the rich, but not blessed are the poor. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor because I can fill them up. He goes on, uh, more radical statements. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 5 again, verse 4, he gives the second of Eight beatitudes or blessings. And these eight are not talking about eight different people. They're talking about one life. For each person, these are the characteristics of a life that is truly blessed. Second one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is Jesus talking about? Blessed are those who are sad all the time? Blessed are those who go around... Their face is long, they're weeping, they're always depressed. No, no, he's not talking about that. What he's alluding to is those who mourn over what should be mourned over. Specifically, blessed are those who mourn over what breaks the heart of God. Blessed are those who are rightly aligned with God. They're poor in spirit, so they reach out with an empty hand and say, God, give to me. Blessed are those who mourn, who think about themselves in the world the same way that God thinks about them in the world. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. And this word for mourning is a word that that talks about an inward feeling that cannot help but be expressed outwardly. If you've ever seen people in an Eastern culture mourn, you know what Jesus is talking about. There's, There's weeping and wailing and dust is flying in the air and clothes are torn. It's an outward expression of this inward grief. He says, blessed are those who mourn, who share the heart of God over sin. Blessed are those who mourn. First, over personal sin. Let me illustrate this for you from Psalm 119. David wrote, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. See that imagery there? My eyes shed streams of water. Okay, it's not just a tear periodically, and you know, this is obviously poetry, but holy cow. <laughs> David says, My eyes are just they're just pouring out. 
because I do not keep your law, God, because I do not live rightly with you and what you've revealed, I just can't hold it back. When was the last time your eyes shed streams of water when the Spirit convicted you of sin? I confess that just doesn't happen very often for me. Or even a single tear. Why is that? I think that I have a fairly superficial view of holiness, honestly. I mean, I've tried to dig it deeper. But seeing the absolute holiness of God and the choices I make and the thoughts that I think, the words that I speak, if I really saw those side by side, it would, it would change my perspective, but often it doesn't. I, don't, I know that's a sin and I confess that sin, but my eyes shed streams of water. And I think a lot of times in, in this respect, my Christianity is, is fairly superficial. David was a man who wept over sin. He shared the heart of God over sin, and so God was able to comfort him. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. I think Jesus is also talking about sin sin that's in the world. Sharing God's heart for sin in general, not just personal sin, but sin everywhere. Keep your place here in Matthew and turn to the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel 9, verse 3. Daniel says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, Lord God, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, God, you are faithful. We, on the other hand, have sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Now remember, Daniel is writing from Babylon. He he is in exile, taken there as as a child, as a youth. Because of the sins of his people, he doesn't get to live where he wants to live. He doesn't get to live in Jerusalem any longer. He's stuck way off in exile in Babylon. And he's praying as an older man now and confessing the sins of his people. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. God, you are in the right. But if I look at the sins of my people, we are in the wrong, and I confess those, and Daniel is broken before the Lord. He is in sackcloth and ashes, laying on the ground in dust. Do we mourn over the sin of our people? Or are we just so used to it that it doesn't affect us any longer? We live in a world that does not mourn over sin. We live in a world that celebrates sin. Two of the most popular vacation destinations, New Orleans and Las Vegas, which is also known as Sin City, right? Get on the plane and go to Sin City. With what intention? To participate in the culture. Or are we that different that we're able to objectively stand back and look at our culture and weep and mourn over it 
Because we share the heart of God. God says, blessed are those who mourn because they look at the world the way that I look at the world and it breaks their heart. They are right with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at the third beatitude. Matthew 5, verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want you to see that there's actually a progression here. Okay? They're not just uh, randomly placed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the beginning place for relationship with God. This is the foundation for relationship with God, acknowledging we have nothing. Blessed are those who mourn, who align themselves with God in his attitude towards sin and righteousness and holiness. Blessed are the meek. Not, not weak. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not passivity. It's another one of those words that we don't use in our normal language. Meekness means strength under control. Blessed are those who are rightly aligned with God. They see themselves as God sees them, having nothing to offer but receiving everything from God, aligned with God in his attitude towards sin and righteousness. And as a result of that, They can have their strength under control. When others view them with contempt, it doesn't surprise them. Because they're seeing themselves as God sees them. Blessed are those whose strength is under control because they know they're rightly aligned with God. God's got their back. So they don't need to always be expressing their strength. They don't always need to be grasping and proving Because God is their protector, because they're rightly aligned with God. Blessed are those who are meek or who have strength under control. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, Peter says, let me sum it up for you in just a few verses. You've been called for this this purpose, this very purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Uh, This is where we began our sermon series on the life of Christ, so to speak. Uh, What we wanted to do is learn from the example of Christ. He provides an actual, real, valid example for us. And so Peter's verse here is a nice summary for this, this whole series. This word example was a word that was used, I don't know if Blake pointed this out, of um, script that was written on a chalkboard for a young student to, to copy or, or imitate. So basically, the ABCs. Okay? The example is the ABCs. You see it there, and then you trace it, and then you write it for yourself. And Peter's saying, I want your life to be a tracing. Follow the example of Christ. Or in other words, he says, for you to follow in his steps. Look at the way that he walked. Step there, step there, step there. They live like Christ lived. Speak like Christ spoke. How do you do that? Verse 22. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Did Jesus have strength to resist? Absolutely. Remember when he's hanging on the cross. 
He could have called legions of angels, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of angels, when he's tempted to do so and the slaves on either side say, if you're really the Son of God, get down off the cross. Prove it. Prove it. Oh yeah, and get us down at the same time. Right? And the Roman soldiers join in and they say, prove that you're the Son of God. And the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin join in and they say, prove that you're the Son of God. And Jesus had at his disposal the strength to prove that he was the Son of God, but instead he stayed silent and he took the beating. Why? So that we could have payment for our sins, so that we could have eternal life, a relationship with God that is secure forever. And Peter says, follow in Jesus' steps. Don't demand your rights. Wow. That is completely and absolutely countercultural. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is trying to completely flip over our worldview. We look at things totally different. Blessed are those who don't demand their rights. That's so un American, right? No. We've got a whole document that tells us what our rights are, and we live by that document. We demand our rights, and Jesus says, you know, but you're Christians first, Americans second. Blessed are those who aren't always clinging to their rights, but sometimes they're willing to say, I will sacrifice my rights so that another person can see Christ and have life that lasts forever, because my rights in this lifetime are not as important as someone coming into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. So follow the example of Christ while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously because he knew, since he was rightly aligned with God, God had his back. God would judge righteously someday, and he could wait for that. He could wait for that. I'll tell you, honestly, I, I, don't, uh, I don't, normally, I don't, I don't really want to be meek. <laughs> and I don't want people thinking of me as meek. It's not, you know, I'm I'm just so much ingrained with this culture that it's hard for me to respect even this idea. But Jesus says, I want you to think differently. Believe me, trust me. The life that's full and satisfying, the blessed life, are those who follow the example of Christ and have strength in Christ, but it's under control, it's restrained. How do we get there? The fourth beatitude, I think, really drives home the point. It's right here in the middle of the the eight beatitudes. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt and they come with empty hands. Blessed are those who mourn, who share the heart of God over sin in themselves and in the world because they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek who have strength because they're rightly aligned with God, but that strength is restrained. It's under control because they shall inherit the earth. They entrust themselves to a righteous God. They know they have an inheritance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. They will not be disappointed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, we live in a world that, um, it's like a big buffet line, right? And the world says, eat your fill and you will be satisfied. Okay? 
take from this, whether it's money, uh, possessions, power, the acclaim of other people, sensuality. Eat and eat your fill. Eat, just keep eating. And the world says, we promise you will be satisfied. And every commercial is designed to drive you toward consumption of one of these other things that offers this promise, but it's a false promise. The problem is, the more that you eat from the world's buffet line, you're satiated spiritually. You're not hungry, hungry anymore for what God offers because you're filled up with the world. And until you set those things aside, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll give you another psalm that illustrates the same principle. David wrote, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. God will not disappoint those who hunger and thirst for what is right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, righteousness, we, we kind of skip over that word, but it's actually kind of challenging to translate. What does he mean by righteousness? There are three different aspects of righteousness. There is righteous status. That is, the moment that I believe I'm placed into right relationship with God, I don't necessarily feel anything about that, but I'm right with God. My status is right. Remember, righteousness means a, a standard. And we've met the standard because Christ met the standard. The standard is absolute and perfect holiness. We could never meet it, but if we are in Christ, we meet the standard in him. So we're righteous. I don't think that's primarily what Jesus is talking about. Another way that righteousness is used is a virtue or character. That is, I want to be rightly aligned with God in the sense that I want to be like Christ. I want to be righteous in that sense. I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are those who long to be right with God because they will be satisfied. I I, I think that... uh, Luke chapter 15, parable of the prodigal son, is a great illustration of this. Remember, the prodigal son is um, struggling. He's at home, and everything is provided for him. He's in a great environment, but it's, it's not enough. He thinks he wants something more, something different, so he goes to his father and says, give me. Give me my portion of the inheritance. And he takes that inheritance, and he goes, and what does he do? Well, he eats at the world's buffet line, and he's, he's enjoying all of these things. And he's so wrapped up in them that he's not noticing the fact that he is becoming impoverished through his consumption. And pretty soon he has used up all of his inheritance. He has absolutely nothing. And the world leaves him empty. So empty that he is at the pit of despair. He is with the swine. He's feeding the swine. He cannot even take the swine's food. He has to eat the the husks. From the corn, not the corn itself, but just the husk. And he's chewing on this because this is all that the world really has to offer once you get down to the bottom of it, right? Okay, it looks like it's something that will satisfy you, but you get all the way to the bottom and you recognize no, it's just a husk. There's nothing in it, there's no nutritional value. It can't satisfy me. And there he is, he's eating, he's eating. And it says he comes to his senses, he wakes up and he realizes, oh, the world is actually like God says. And what does he do at that moment in time? He rushes back to his family, hoping that he can just get in in as a slave. And what does his father do? Looking for him a long way off, seeing his son before his son sees him, the father rushes out to the son and embraces him. 
with stinky swine smell all over him, and he embraces him, and what does he do? He puts the best robe on him. He gives him the signet ring that is family authority. He brings out the fattened calf. They have a huge party, and all of a sudden, the son realizes again, no, this is where life is. This is where life is. To be right with my father. To live with my father. To be like my father. There's a third way, though, that righteousness is used, and that is when God puts all things to rights. If the meek will inherit the earth, we are hoping that God will put the earth right. And it won't be as it is now, where there's resistance to God, where there's sin and corruption, and the earth is bringing forth thorns and thistles. No, one day God will set all things right, all people, all of creation, And those who are rightly aligned with him will enjoy that point in time. And I think that's what Jesus is ultimately talking about. Blessed are those who are right with me. They they will be satisfied. I will not disappoint them if they're willing to wait. As we close, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to just take a few moments silently before the Lord and ask the Lord if we really believe what he says about how life is full and rich, what he says about how life really works? Or are we going to the world's buffet line? Are we eating so much that we are satiated and we don't have that hunger any longer for God and and ask God to remove that and refresh and restore us a, a hunger and a thirst for all that is right? Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are so frequently deceived by the world and and that we frequently deceive ourselves. I pray that you would, like the prodigal son, cause us to come to our senses and believe what you say. I pray that we would have hearts that break over sin, that we would mourn over sin, that we would recognize that we're poor and destitute and in need of all that you give and that we would receive from you. I pray, Father, that you would refresh our hearts and our spirits in you this morning. I thank you, Father, that we have the hope that following you and living as you tell us to live will never disappoint. We will always be satisfied. Thank you, Father, for giving us time, set aside time together to sing praises to you, time in your word, to be reminded of truth. I pray that your truth would stick with us throughout the week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's richest blessings on you. We're going to finish the Beatitudes next week. And I was asked to remind you that Discover Grace is going to meet at the 11 o'clock service if you want to come and find out more about Grace Bible Church. Have a great week.